Praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, would you open up with me to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2. We are beginning a series, or continuing a series that we began last Sunday. And this Sunday we're going to look in chapter 2. And what is so awesome about the book of Revelation, in verse 3 of chapter 1 it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things written which are written in it for the time is near. There is a blessing promised to those who read, hear, and put into practice the message of Revelation. Because we understand that the message of the book of Revelation is not just about end time events, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the last battle of all battles, the battle of Armageddon. It is about the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. His kingdom, his glory, the blessing of knowing that Jesus Christ wears the victor's crown. For us to understand this morning that we have read the end of the book. We know who wins. We win. We are on the winning side. This morning as we look into the book of Revelation, 22 chapters, chapter a divinely inspired outline of the whole book. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, Jesus says this to John. Write the things which you have seen. That would be chapter 1. That would be the self-disclosure, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, where John saw Jesus in his glorified, resurrected, heavenly body. So write the things which, have, which you have seen. That's chapter 1. And then it says, write the things which are. That would be chapters 2 and 3, where... John is to address the seven churches of Asia Minor, which would be now modern-day Turkey. And then Jesus said the things which will take place after this, that would be chapters 4 to 22. Those are yet futuristic. Those are the events that are prophetically uh, proclaimed, described in the book of Revelation, that are next on God's prophetic calendar. At any time, chapters 4 through 22 can begin to unfold. Matter of fact, if you look in verse, um, verse 1, actually, it says, things which must shortly take place. And some have gotten confused by that, and they think, well, that means it should have happened by now or swiftly come to pass, meaning that when they begin to happen, there will be a quickness and a swiftness in their fulfilling. It doesn't mean that they should have already happened by now. It just means that when they do happen, they will happen swiftly, they will unfold quickly, and the world will be wowed big time. So that is an outline. Write the things that you've seen, chapter 1, Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and write the things that will take place in the future, chapters 4 to 22. 
Last week we saw in chapter 1 the revelation of Jesus that he gave to John. It was an introduction to the book of Revelation. It was critical, it was important that Jesus would reveal himself as the one who wears the victor's crown. He would reveal himself as the almighty God, the one who is a conqueror and who is sovereign and one who is over all. Why is that important? Because back then, today and tomorrow, this world looks like it's in chaos. This world looks like there are other powers that are in control. But Jesus wanted John to know, he wanted the churches to know that he is the one that is all-powerful. He is the one that is in absolute sovereign control over the nations of the world, over your life and over my life and over all the churches. Praise the Lord. So in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to look at over the next several weeks, but we're going to look at the first uh, of the seven churches that Jesus personally addresses, and it's the church of Ephesus. Now, these are going to be seven messages that Jesus delivers to seven different churches, they were literal churches of that day, of the first century. They were seven churches that were in existence at the time of John and the messages, and they were also representative of churches of all time and in every place. So what do I mean by that? I mean that the messages that we're going to look at as we explain them and interpret them in the first century context but then apply them today, we will see the relevance of what we're going through. What we need to hear as a church. What we need to hear as Christians. So they are literal, real churches. One commentator said they represent the totality of Christ's churches scattered across the world and over time. Their problems are symptomatic of those confronting churches in all times and in all places. In other words, the messages that we're going to see uh, are going to be relevant to churches today. The messages are going to be relevant. The um, commendation will be relevant in some places, but also the correction and the challenge from Jesus to repent and to change. Now, all the messages are to be read by all the churches and taken to heart. You notice every one of these seven churches ends with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. I want you to get that. Jesus didn't say, let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the church to the one specific church, but to the churches. And all of these letters were to be circulated and read amongst the other churches because they were God's inspired word to all people for all times. A message that was to be read and taken to heart. In chapter 2, verse 23, the word of God says, that all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts. That all the churches, again, I want you to get that, because the church 
the message to Ephesus, the principles in principle could be applied to the other churches. The, church, the message to Ephesus 2,000 years ago has relevance to us today. How do I know that? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 5, 15 verse 4 says, Whatsoever things were written beforehand were written for our instruction that we through the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That whatever was written, what was written in God's word is for us that we might have hope. Why is it so critical? You might have heard this said before, but people could live literally weeks without food. People could live days without water. People could live minutes without oxygen. But you can't live one second without hope. We as the people of God need hope. We need hope today. We need hope for tomorrow. And that hope is found in the scriptures, found in God's holy word. You are here today, not because I'm such a great preacher, but because I preach the word of God. And because Jesus' word is exalted in this place, his presence is worshipped, his glory is manifested, and we, we with a whole heart want to honor him. We want to have ears to hear. It's not talking about your physical ear. Matter of fact, Jesus said even if you have an ear, he'll take one ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. So this morning, God wants to go beyond my words. And he wants to speak to your spirit. He's got a message for you. Turn to the person next to you. Just give him an elbow. Give him a, give him a, 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 a safe, no, no handshake, socially acceptable COVID era elbow. That they'd wake up. The messages are strategic. They're insightful. They're accurate. You see, these messages are from Christ to each church. And if you notice, we're going to notice in the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 to each of the churches that Jesus speaks to the church and he gives a self-description uh, that's taken from chapter 1 that we read last week. So each church, he describes himself according to the revelation that he gave to John. That is important because that all speaks of his, of his lordship, of his authority, of his, of his power to speak to every church. Amen? The first church that we're going to look at is the church at Ephesus. We know from the book of Acts that Paul spent three and a half years ministering at this church. Acts chapter 20, he gives a farewell address to the elders, the leadership of the church, and he pours out his heart and he says, I was with you uh, three, and, three and a half years and, and, and laboring day and night to, to, to preach to you the gospel and to teach you. And so this church was, was, a, was a powerful church in the midst of a very, very pagan culture. It was in the midst of an idolatry that was so powerful we're told that Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis, or as one translation calls it, Diana of the Ephesians. This was a temple that was dedicated to the idol of the god of fertility. And actually, there were temple prostitutes that were attached to the temple that engaged in sexual uh, uh, 
response to, to those who came to worship there. This was an ungodly, wicked culture. The, the Temple of Artemis was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was 425 feet long. That would be about a football field and a half long. 220 feet wide. It had 120 columns, each 60 feet high. 36 of them were uh, richly inlaid with, with precious metals and, and gold and silver. And these temples were the center of this city. And also a part of that was the worship of, of the emperor. Domitian, who was the, the Roman emperor at that time, demanded worship. So it's in this context that the church had to battle and wrestle and deal with, with compromise and complacency and sin all around them. Not so different than today. We live in a godless culture. We live in a culture that is anti-Christ. Let's face it. We live in a, in a, in a, in a, in a social media age, in a Hollywood, where there's vulgarity, where there's evil, where there's sensuality on levels that our grandparents would blush at if they were still alive today, even if they weren't Christians. They would know something's not right. But what has happened, you and I have slowly been desensitized to begin to, to, begin to accept and, and to begin to, to, to not sense the grieving that, that we should because we become desensitized. But it's time that the church wakes up. We're living in a critical hour in history where we need to be ready as the people of God. We need to deal with compromise and complacency and live passionately for Jesus Christ. This church had a rich history of leadership. Paul the Apostle founded the church. His men, uh, disciple, Timothy, would pastor this church. And also tradition tells us, historically, from historians, not in the, in the Bible, but Historians tell us that John the Apostle also spent time giving leadership to this church in Ephesus. I've entitled this church the Almost Perfect Church, just like victory. In the world of church growth and development, churches can practice uh, partner with what's known as a church consultant. And a church consultant can come and visit a church unknown to everyone but the pastor to evaluate, assess the church's ministry effectiveness. They are like some businesses have, I guess it's called a secret shopper. I think Gary had told me that Cumberland Farms has secret shoppers that come in to, to see how they're treated, to see the condition of the store. And these church consultants can, can visit a church and check it out. They check out the, the physical plant, the cleanliness, the decor, the appearance. They check out the people, the greeters, the parking lot attendants, the, the friendliness of the members. They check out it's the ministry, the children, the nursery, the worship team, they, they check out the media, the literature, etc., etc. And what they do is they evaluate and draw up a plan for a church to become more effective and more fruitful. 
And in many ways, it could be helpful. We've never had that done, in case any of you are wondering, looking around and saying, are there any spies in here? <laughs> but it could be insightful, it could be instructive, it could be helpful in, in many ways, but, but you know what? It could be surface, too, outward. Sometimes things are not what they appear. Sometimes you could miss the intangibles, you can see the, the surface and not really look below the surface. And you know, research tells us that nowadays most people, most people before they attend a church will check out a church online, will check out their website. And see, that, that could be okay, but you know what? It could be based on how slick the webpage is. How well the church is marketed and how sharp the church's branding is. All of that could be well and good, but not necessarily accurate and on target. And I fear that there are a lot of Christians who, are, who judge a church, who judge a ministry by surface things by outward things, by things that could look good but are not necessarily indicative of the heart of the church. God help us. We need prayer. We need discernment. We need God to guide us. The Bible tells us that when Samuel the prophet was called by God to anoint a successor to King Saul, to anoint the second king of Israel, that Samuel went to the household of Jesse, and Jesse had several sons that, that he presented to Samuel, and, and Samuel got caught up in this. He got caught up in the outward. He got caught up in what he saw, and he said, truly, this is the Lord's anointed, because he looked the part. And God said, this ain't the one. Another one came by. Surely this is the one. No, no, no. Until finally Jesse had presented all of his sons and, and Samuel was a little confused and he says, is there not someone else? Is there not another son? And Jesse said, yeah, there's, there's a little lad. He's with the sheep. And Samuel said, I won't sit down until you bring him out. And then when he came, the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. And then God revealed a critical, critical principle. He said, man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. God help us to go a little deeper. God help us to look at things as they are and not be so gullible, not be so deceived, not be so fooled. Jesus is going to go to the heart of the matter in this passage of Scripture. He is going to give the church at Ephesus a spiritual x-ray. He's going to reveal the heart of the matter. The man of God in the Psalms said, Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Search my heart, O God. Lead me in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Jeremiah the prophet said, The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? But I, the Lord, search the heart. I want you to understand something. Victory Church is made up of... of individuals. 
Amen? It's not just me or the staff or a few people. We are collectively the church for good or for bad. Hello? Oh, I know we're so quick to point the finger at somebody else. And... No, no, no. It's, it's me, oh Lord. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's you, oh Lord, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Victory Church is the collective sum total of all of us. I don't know if you're getting that. Uh, you're still looking like you're an outsider looking in and checking things out. No, God's checking you out. I'm checking some of you out too. You see, we want God's true and accurate assessed, assessment. So we're not deceived. Amen? I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be deluded. Someone once said the worst kind of deception is self-deception. Jesus is going to approach every church with eyes that like a flame of fire. He's going to see through all of the externals and he's going to get right to the heart. How many of you want a heart x-ray this morning? It's for your own good. It's for your own good this morning that, that God reveals things because a heart left to itself is wicked. Pride rises up. Covetous rises up. Lust rises up. All kinds of evil, bitterness, unforgiveness. The pride takes a stronghold. The Bible says a root of, a root of bitterness defiles many people. So we want God to do some surgery. Amen. I don't know how I'm going to get through this message. You got to say amen so I can keep going. If you don't say amen, I'm not sure if you're getting it. And I got to keep working it and working it. Let's read verses 1 to 7. Don't worry, my, my introduction's longer than the rest of this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. You know who the angel is? I'm going to blow some of you away this morning. You know who the angel is? You didn't know you had an angel for a pastor, did you? Oh, you don't believe me. You, some, of you, some of you just, just elbowed your, your spouse. I'm not sure if this is the right church. Pastor thinks he's an angel. Let's, let's, go, to, uh, let's go to verse uh, 20 of chapter 1. Now I'm going to really blow your mind. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I'm not only an angel, I'm a star. Uh, isn't that in the Bible? Now listen, all right, before you check out, the word angel is used as uh, the, the original language, it could, it could be used as a messenger. So let's, let's use the term messenger before some of you freak out. <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. So, so, so Jesus 
is revealing it to John, and John, the, the, this, this, this message is going to the leadership of the church. Why is that critical? Because the reality of it is, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. As the leadership goes, so goes the nation. As the leadership goes, so goes the, 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 the community or whatever, the organization. Everything really rises and falls on leadership. So the message is to the leader to pass on to the church. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. I'm glad to know and I'm encouraged today, especially during a worldwide pandemic, especially during all of the chaos and the confusion in our world, to know that Jesus holds the leadership of the church in his hand. That he walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. They represented the churches. So Jesus is sovereignly, totally, completely in control. Let me tell you, that takes a lot of pressure off you and I. If we'd come to that realization, we would worry a whole lot less. We would fret a whole lot less to know, to be still, be still, be still, and know that I am God. So here we have Jesus going to give an accurate description, an accurate assessment of this church. He's no secret, secret shopper. He's the Lord of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the Lord. He's the God of all churches in all the world. Look at verse 2. I know. I know. He didn't say I think so. Maybe he said, I know your works. Now, each of these letters begins with the title of the, uh, the description of the name of the church and then a self-description of Christ and then com commendation, uh, encouragement, positive things about the church. And we're going to see it's, um, some churches have nothing positive. God has nothing positive to say. Uh, and others, he's got only positive to say. So we'll see it as we walk through them. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Down to verse 6, but this, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. As Jesus assesses this church very quickly, he finds that they are diligent. This church is a diligent church. They are working and they are laboring. That word labor means, or part of the description is, is to toil to the point of exhaustion. The members of this church were so committed to the ministry that they were so diligent that they, they, they worked and, made, and, and gave effort to the point, the cost of actual pain. My question to you, are you involved in a ministry that you are working to the point that it's causing, you're feeling it. You see, this was not a church like today. Most churches today, we, we hear this, this, this statistic that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Not, not here in this church at Ephesus. Jesus is saying, I know your work. I know your toil. He is commending them. And I want to challenge you today that you do something in this church for the glory of God, that you take a load off of some of those who are toiling to the point of pain. 
that you get involved in a ministry, not just one you like and, and makes you feel good, but something that makes you, you actually feel something, expending energy and time and effort, being faithful. This church was diligent. This church was determined. Look what it says. It says that you, your, your, pers- your patience, and sometimes that word patience, we can get a little confused. It's, it's, it's like a, we think it's a passive term of just patiently waiting. No, that's, that word means perseverance, steadfastness. You see, they were working hard, and they were working long. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord inasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why can you be steadfast? Why should you be steadfast? Why would, would you work hard? Why would you work to the point uh, of feeling it? Because you know that your labor is not in vain. God sees your labor. God needs your labor because this is the work of the ministry. You see, most of us could give a little extra if we have to. But sustaining it over the long run is what separates the men from the boys. I salute those who have toiled years, decades, faithful, behind-the-scenes service. Victory Church is what it is today, not just because of me, but because of those who have been pillars in the church, who have been here for not just a few months or years, excited, and then you don't see them, no, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I salute them because they know how to run a marathon, not just a sprint. You see, here at Ephesus, they were serving, they were toiling, and the Bible also says that they were discerning. They tested those who said they were apostles, and they were not. God, deliver us from gullible Christians. Just because somebody has a title, just because somebody posts something on Facebook, just because they have a a following, does not mean that they are of God. We're told in the Bible to test the spirits, to see whether they are of God. You know, it blows my mind. Can I just vent a little bit? I'm going to quit preaching and just vent. There was, the stories I've heard and and know personally, it blow your mind. One person in our church came to me and, and, and he said, Pastor, I need you to help me. I said, okay, let me see what I can do for you. He said, there's a bishop that I know. He borrowed $1,000 off me and he won't pay me. I says, well, I'd love to help you, but there ain't much I can do. If the bishop ain't going to pay you, he ain't going to pay you. What kind of bishop is that? He's a thief. God help us. Let's call it as it is. Just because he calls himself a bishop and he picks your pocket, that disqualifies him as a bishop. He said, he won't give it back to me. I said, well, did you put anything in writing? He said, no. I said, well, there's your first mistake. Well, he was a bishop. Put it in writing. I don't care if he's a bishop, an apostle, put it in writing. Jesus said, you tested those who who say they are apostles, but they're not. We have to be discerning people. I'm amazed some people have left this church to go to other churches, to start a church in the church. I knew it was a house of cards. It was only a matter of time before it would fold. 
And it did fold. And I don't say that condescendingly or begrudgingly, but I said if they discerned, if they discerned, they wouldn't have gone to such a a, a foolish setup. God help us. Test. Jesus said you tested those. I want to ask you, are you testing? Are you discerning? I'm not saying be critical and be always suspicious, but use some discernment. Hello? Come on, am I preaching the Bible this morning? Am I telling you the truth today? This is in the word. Don't take what I say. But you search the scriptures to make sure it lines up with what God has said already in his word. They were diligent. They were determined. They were discerning. And you would say, wow. You know what? Today they would be on the cover of all Christian magazines. Today they'd be all over social media as the perfect church. Come to the church at Ephesus and all people will be leaving smaller churches to go to the bigger one. Don't let me get started this morning. I'm trying to be good. God help us, the foolishness that goes on. People stealing church members. People going from here to there. Yes, there are times when you could leave a church, do it the right way. And, and, but the reality of it is there's too much, too much sheep stealing. This church looked perfect until the eyes of Jesus penetrated below the surface. And I want to ask you this morning, I wonder what would it be like if Jesus would give a, an assessment of Victory Church? What would he say? And I conclude with this thought. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Jesus had just commended them and listed some incredible characteristics of this church. But then he said, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. In studying this passage of scripture, different commentators would propose different explanations to what the first love was. Some would say it was the the love that they had for one another. They they were so diligent, they were so hardworking that it became a little mechanical maybe and, and they lost the depth of feeling and emotion for the congregation or the brothers and sisters. Others say it was... They, they left their first love, the passion for lost souls. They no longer cared, you know, for reaching people. They were just concerned about the church being intact. And others would say, and, and I kind of hold to this view myself personally in my study, is first love was their first love passion for Jesus. It was that, 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 excitement of being born again. Do you remember that? When you were first born again, you, you didn't show up late for church. You were early for church. When you were first born again, you, you were so excited to serve God. It didn't matter. You, you, when you were first born again, you were so passionate to do the work of God. It was just with excitement and passion. It wasn't mechanical. It's the same as a marital relationship, that, that honeymoon period. I know times change and the love grows deeper and wider, but we should still have that, that passion in our, our relationship. If my wife goes out and, and I'm at home and I do the dishes, you know, because I run things around my house. I run the dishwasher. 
a vacuum. If I do all of those things and she comes home and she says, honey, thank you so much for doing all this. And I say, well, I'm committed to the institution of marriage. I believe in being faithful. No, that would be mechanical. I do that because I love her. When I first, when we were first dating, she worked at a, a law firm, firm in Providence, and there was some high-powered law, lawyers there. It was a well-known firm, and, and, and I was so in love with her, and her favorite dessert was brownies. And I would bring her brownies. I was her brownie boy. <laughs> but I didn't care because I, I was in love. I didn't care about the lawyers and their slick suits and positions, and I was just bringing my wife a brownie. But as time goes on, she gives hints about a brownie. And, and I tell her, well, honey, they're not healthy. Too much sugar in those brownies. Why don't you bake something healthy? <laughs> but isn't that what ha happens in our relationship with Lord, the Lord? We get to the point where we think we're doing God a favor if we just show up for church. Well, I came to church. God's not looking for our, our, our works, our duty. They're important, our, our diligence. But if there's no passion, if there's no love, we're missing it. <laughs> Nevertheless, you have left your first love. And here's what Jesus says. There's so much I can say, but I need to bring this to a close. Look what Jesus says. Remember. Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus gives us a, a prescription. Basically, it's, it's repent. What does the word repentance mean? It means change. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Change your perspective. Let it come into agreement with the word of God. But, but first he says, remember. Sometimes, remember, memory is good in most regards, unless we're remembering the wrong things. But he says, remember where you fall from. Remember the days of your, your first love with Jesus. Remember that excitement. Remember that passion where it was just flowing out of your heart. He says, repent. Change. And then he says, do do the first works again. Go back to what you used to do. You see, first love transcends all other affections. Jesus said, if you love, if you love your brother or sister, mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me. Jesus is first. When he's first, we'll have the kind of love we need to have for others. When Jesus is first, that, that everything else will come into alignment. First love transcends all other affection. First love also transcends the love of things. John said in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Love not the things of the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and not of the Father, but of the world, and the world passes away. But he that does the will of God abides forever. You see... First love is all about a person. We need to understand the value that Jesus places upon us, devoting ourselves to him and making him our first love. Would you stand together with me as we pray this morning?
Can we remember the devotion and the affection and the passion of our first love with Jesus? Can we remember a better time when we were just so in love with God or so excited about him that there was commitments, there were consecrations, there were sacrifices, there was love? Can we remember that? And today, can we repent? In these few moments, we're going to close in just a moment. My brother Pasquale is going to come and just close with, with just the offering time. But before we do that, I just want to know if there's some here this morning, in these next few moments, that you would just remember, you would repent, change. Just, just yield to God today. Return to your first love and do the first works. Go back to that comp. That, consecration, that commitment to Jesus. This is a challenge to all of us. I think all of us need to hear this. I need to hear it. I want to make sure that Jesus is my first love, my greatest love. Would you pray right now, just in your own way, bow in your heart, bow your head. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. For each and every one here today. Lord, we, we only love you because you first loved us. That's what your word says, God. And so, Lord, we just respond to your great love today. Help us in this church, in this place. God, that we would be that church that you would, you would just speak well of. But, Lord, if there are things that need to be corrected, we want to hear it. We don't want to be ignorant of, of our weaknesses or our lack in this church. We don't want to ever become so proud to think that we don't have to change. And again, that's not just in the, for the church as a whole, but individually, as church members, as regular attenders, that we would all examine our heart and say to you, Lord, search us, reveal things to us. And God, help us to change. Help us to do the first works, to go back to that first love devotion, that passion salvation when we first met you God bless your people God and for those that never had a first love experience or this first love we're talking about God let them experience that let them have an encounter with you God I pray that we'd all repent we'd all change we'd all turn to you with all our heart today Father let the words of the seven churches this first church be a a correction and a confirmation and an encouragement in all that we need it to be. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning.